Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. This show is for veterans, first responders, and their families, and honestly, for anybody who wants to recover from trauma. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. Our vision is of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please help with this mission by following and rating this show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This simple action will help others find help for PTS injuries. Your help in promoting this podcast could be saving a life. And we are rolling live for another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Tremor Recovery Podcast. It's been a while, audience. I apologize about that. But hey, it's summer. I had to get out to the lake. And I am really, really pleased to have on the show today, Daniel Hearn. Daniel is the host of Hard Knock Talks, and he's been incredibly successful with it. The vast majority of podcasts that are out there, people quit after five or ten episodes because they don't get all the dopamine hits that they want from the likes and subscribes. Everybody seems to think that uh, if they put out 10 or 20 episodes, they'll be Joe Rogan overnight. It doesn't work Mm -hmm. like that. Not even close. But um, Daniel is one of the guys that's actually sticking to it, doing well, and more importantly than that, more important than the clicks, he's doing something with a mission and a vision like I am that matters and that helps people. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for the glowing, uh, the glowing introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got to be a heck of a journey for you. Like um, I often tell people that, I don't do this for everybody else. I do this for me because it's healthy for me. Is there any of that going on with you as well? Is Do you find it therapeutic having a mental health podcast? Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, yes, I absolutely do. Um, I, I've been very fortunate to, to be offered the path that I'm on. Um, like we discussed a little before the show, I've, I've had some wonderful supports and it's given me an opportunity to meet some really wonderful people and build some really, really productive bridges um, and you know, the, my, my, my program of recovery states, we keep what we have by giving it away. And this, this gives me a wonderful opportunity to do that. We so. keep what we have by giving it away. Tell me more about that. Wrap my head around it. So service is, is big for, for me to, uh, to keep that, that cup full, um, we keep what we have by giving it away. We, we find recovery, right? We find a safer way to live and we need to find something fulfilling in that to, to, because we all just want to feel better, right? Like when, when I was using, um, I, I found a way that could make me feel better right now, uh, on, until it stopped working. But in, <laughs> yeah, until yeah, it it's, it's a short, it's a short term solution. It's a great solution for a bit. I mean, it works. Right? Oh, it was wonderful at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. no, I had, I had some great times, you know, and that reminds me, there's a saying, uh, my best day, um, sorry, my worst day sober is still better than my best day drunk. I don't stand with that. I had some great times when I was drunk, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and on my, on my worst day sober, I, I, I kind of wanted to die. So, but yeah. Isn't it funny how everybody gets a pass if they drink too much because everybody drinks a little so they can connect to it. But if your poison is heroin or, or crack, oh, you're a freaking junkie or you're mm-hmm. a crackhead. 
you know, it, yeah. it, it's, um, but it's the same thing. It's the, exactly the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. and matter of fact, alcohol is more poisonous and more dangerous. It, it just don't have the, um, doesn't have that social stigma with it. Uh, yeah. what, how do you deal with, with that stigma of alcoholism versus, um, hard drug addiction? Like, do you even address it with people? I, I will answer that in one second. I have a giant dog behind me and a kid and they're both making too much noise. Okay. (laughs) Guys, guys, you gotta go. You gotta go. Can you close that door, please? Sorry. Hey, I got a home studio too, brother. I get it. Yeah, yeah. And it's summer <laughs> vacation, right? The kids are here. That's right. We, we do our best. We do our best. Um, <laughs> now, uh, how do I deal with the stigma? Um, well, being or having a presence on social media, uh, it, it's like if you don't, when you start getting the trolls, that's like a rite of passage. That means that you're reaching people that think differently than you. Yeah. Right? So when I, when I see that, when I God, see someone. God, God bless the haters. Yeah, yeah. Probably wouldn't have made it if it wasn't for the haters. <laughs> um, when I see that, you know, I, I look past the words and I, I find gratitude in, in the opportunity that I have in a, you know, I can maybe maybe say something to this person. So um, when I see, you know, as long as they're not too hateful, you know, some people can say some pretty dark things. But um, <laughs> if, if, if I come across people that are, are, you know, all addicts are trash, I'm like, well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. You know, and um, that usually disarms them a little. They don't know what to, either they don't respond or they're like, wow, you know, uh, I have an uncle or I have a friend or everybody's got somebody, right? Um, kindness has, has, uh, has been a very good tool for me in, in facing the stigma. It's really the only tool. If you, you can't fight fire with fire. It does nothing mm-hmm. but create more division. Never in the history of ever has uh, a, a, a fight been won on social media because of two people yelling at each other. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, however, I have had experiences where somebody says something just dark and nasty, and I go in with compassion. You know, I don't, not wagging my finger, but wagging mm-hmm. my finger, if that makes mm-hmm. a sense. You know, doing like calling them on it without being holier than now. And Mm -hmm. what has happened more than once is a private message going, I don't know what I was thinking because Mm -hmm. people, they, um, when emotion is high, rationale is low. So if you say something that challenges somebody's belief system, the response is often visceral because Mm -hmm. on social media, when you challenge somebody, you're challenging their world, their their worldview, their viewpoint, and they defend it mm-hmm. like it's their children. Well, it feels like part of who they are, right? When, when you attack someone's ideals, um, ideals are, are part of how we see the, like you said, how we see the world. And, and further to that, it, it's sort of a piece of, of what we are or what we think we are. And, and when you challenge that, it's tough. It can be tough. I think part of it too is we think we are our opinions. Mm. You know, I am a good person or I'm a value per, valuable person because of the team that I'm on and because of the opinions that I hold. So if you challenge those opinions, you're challenging who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, not true, but that is the internal process that's going on for people. 
And uh, that's a challenge for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about the uh, moniker that you have, Daniel Unmanageable. (laughs) Yes. Where's that from, brother? Well, um, again, in my my program of recovery, um, there is uh, a point where you have to admit unmanageability in your life. Now, when I was going through these, these, these steps to a safer way, I had this idea that my, my, my urge to be heard, my, my, my want, I want to be seen, I want to be heard, I want to, you know, all these things, I want to be loud. Um, I was sort of led to believe and I sort of came to my own conclusion that that was a defect of character. You know, that's ego, that's grandiosity, mm-hmm. right? So when I came to realize that it was an, in fact a wonderful asset, I, I shook hands with that, um, that, that ego, so to speak. And I, I made a deal and I said, okay, we can go out and we can make as much damn noise as we can, be as big and loud and shiny as we can, but it has to be through service to community. And I named it Daniel Unmanageable, and I turned it loose. And here we are. Well, because we don't do what we do for the clicks and the likes and the ego and, hey, look at me, I have a show. Mm-hmm. You know, I at least that's what I'm getting from you. You know, I know I don't do it for that. But now let's, let's, let's unpack that for a moment. Okay. Um, the clicks and the likes and the views are cool. I mean, we both, we, (laughs) it is, but that's not it. That's, that's part of the business strategy. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, algorithmically and, and, um, as part of the brand, right. If, 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 if we have a lot of likes and a lot of views, the algorithm will see that and say, Hey, this is good content and show our content to more people. thus helping us carry our message further. So I, I do care very much about engagement. That is not my primary purpose, why I do it. But if I want to be heard by a lot of people, then that needs to be part of my strategy. I need to do what I can to, to get that engagement to work with the algorithm. Right. But the, my, my point is that you're not doing it for shallow ego. No. You're doing no. it because these are metrics that show us, hey, the work that I'm doing, the effort that I'm putting in is touching lives and mm-hmm. it's helping people. And yes. if we're going to be putting in all this work, as you know, it is a lot of work. Um, yeah. If we're going to be doing all that, it's nice to know that it's not wasted that it's growing, that uh, people are, are being helped and that it, that platform is expanding. You know, that's the mm-hmm. point of the metrics and the clicks and the likes and the comments and uh, how many views and, and all that sort of good stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, oh, okay, the mission is, uh, it's working. <laughs> all, this, all this work I'm putting in, it's, it's working. It's paying off and more people are, uh, are, are connecting. Yes. Yeah. And, and it, and it can be frustrating sometimes when you, when you put something together that's very meaningful um, and, and it doesn't get, oh, it doesn't get very many likes or it doesn't get very many views. But on the flip, on the flip side of that, when you get a message saying, I saw this and, and it saved my life or 
thank you for this. Um, my son saw an episode or my brother saw an episode or, you know, I'm here for the first time. Um, that, that, that's my, that's my, that's my metric that fills my soul, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Myself yeah. as well It's the private messages. And, yeah. um, my show is a little bit different than yours because it's an aggregate for resources. So I go out and find every, and you do a lot of that as well. But I, mm-hmm. um, what I really like about your show is all the success stories. I think that's something where I'm really weak and that I haven't done oh. enough of. And um, is, that must be a conscious decision that, that you've made showing ex- that re- recovery happens. And tell me about your thought process in, in, sh- in showing as many success stories as you have. Well, I, I, I didn't really think about different formats or, or different topic points. Um, I, this is just what I wanted to do from the start. I wanted to start a, uh, a show and I wanted to help people share their stories. Uh, and it just, it kind of happened organically. It wasn't, it wasn't a conscious thought process uh, and, and the, they just, it's, they just come, the people just come, you know, I, I, I have more success for people just wanting to share their story than I do of me going out and, and headhunting people. Uh, it's, it's interesting that I thought I would have a lot more success bringing on professionals to talk about, you know, addiction and substance use as it relates to their vocation, whether that be research or advocacy or, or what have you. Um, but it, it just seems like my, my guests lean more towards success stories and, and they just, they just sort of come. Yeah. And mine's on the other end. I think I, I have a lot of global experts that come on. Um, hmm. but I think it's more powerful even when there is a personal story attached and oh, I agree people say for, cause my realm is combat PTSD, which is also for, for first responders. But there is no separation between that and, and, and addiction. <laughs> Matter of mm-hmm. fact, why don't we sit there for a second? Um, sure. What have you discovered as far as the link between trauma and addiction? Can you have one without the other? Well, when I look at my own personal story, I, I remember craving alcohol well before my first drink. And I, I didn't have a traumatic childhood in, in your traditional sense of the word. Uh, I, we hear so many stories on my platform about how childhood trauma led to this or, or, or whatever, you know, bad, bad things happened and, and I picked up. So I believe oftentimes, yes, it is a matter of, um, of trying to escape the trauma or trying to cope with the trauma, but, but not always. It's, um, it's kind of a fickle creature to be honest. So for yourself, what do you think was going on there that like, is it, is it just epigenetics? Like what's going on that you would have a craving for alcohol before you're, um, uh, before you've even had a taste of it? Give me one moment. Yeah. So for our audio uh, listeners, we're, we're both in home studios and uh, Daniel's got a little one walking past the, the screen scene and uh, the green screen trying to get his attention, <laughs> which yeah, is pretty, and, and pretty adorable. 
Well, yeah, I, I, it is, it is. And in the moment I get frustrated, but after the fact, it's always, you know, it's okay. But, uh, yeah, this is a little more than, than, than we usually get. So I'm not <laughs> sure what's going on out there, but uh, it's one of those days, I suppose. So I'm uh, sorry. Can you, can you repeat the question? Please? <laughs> no problem. Yeah. It's, it's tough when you're focusing on, on two things. Um, what the heck was my question? I, mean, it was just, I was just enjoying that moment, actually. <laughs> Pretty damn cute. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I, I don't know what, what the heck my question was. Oh, epigenetics. Was. You're talking about genetics. Right, because uh, there's, got, there's, there's, there's got to be some sort of reason that you would be craving alcohol before you even have a drink. I mean, you must yeah. have spent some time exploring, like, how could that possibly be? Yeah, and it's strange because... It wasn't even that. So, so my dad is alcoholic. Um, he put the plug in the jug before I came along though, really, or at least so early that I don't remember it. Uh, so it, it is interesting in my case. And I have done a lot of deep work trying and thinking and like, where, where did this come from? Could this have possibly been an external thing? And, and for me, I have just come to the conclusion that, you know, the, the, the framework that this is a disease or that this is genetic, I think there's merit to that because I think that's what happened with me. Uh, I come from a long line of alcoholics. So even though it wasn't in my home in a, in a predominant way, uh, I, did, I did have that predisposition and, and I fell to it. I, I couldn't wait. And as soon as I had the opportunity, I got blackout drunk and I... I pissed all over myself. I was 13 years old. And on Monday, instead of being waking up and being like, oh, this sucks. I went to school and I bragged about it to all my friends. Let's and, do and it again. Was, yeah. And the light switch was clicked and it became all about Friday night right away. How did you afford it? Or was it just pirating it from your parents? How, how did you get bit, a hold like of the booze? Like there wasn't a lot. I, well, this one time my, my parents won a, a wheelbarrow full of booze from a, from a, a contest or something. And neither of them <laughs> drank, really. You know, uh, it was my, my dad and my, my stepmother at the time. Uh, but no, it, it wasn't real prevalent in my house. Like it, I would just, you know, I would, I would get the money. I would get an allowance. And uh, my, my grandfather was a very, very much the type you work. If you want good things in your life, you work and you get paid and you work hard and you save and all of this thing. So if I ever needed money, I could go to my grandpa's house and I could do some work. You know, I cut the lawn or... Whatever, whatever the case. So there was always, there wasn't a big pile of money, but there was always enough to, you know, get, get your booze on Friday night and make a mess. So did you have people bootlegging for you? Bootlegging, you mean pulling? Like, like people that were old enough? Yeah. Maybe we call it something different where we are. We call it pulling here. Oh, we call it bootlegging uh, in Alberta. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No, we, yeah, I did. I definitely did. Yeah. You know, then cost an extra five bucks and they'd walk through the door and get the bottle and. Have a nice night, kiddo. <laughs> and, and off you'd go. Yeah. Was it just alcohol for you? In the beginning, when I turned 15, I found uh, hash oil. And I, the first couple times of that was great, but then it gave me crippling anxiety. Really? And I didn't stop. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people are like, what? That's weird. But that was the case for me. And It's I'm, supposed to do that, the opposite of that. I know. That's what I was thinking. So I tried it for like 10 years just to make sure. And <laughs> sure, sure enough, sure enough, it was not different. Every time I did it was not different. But, you know, I was so desperate to escape myself. And, and just because I thought that I wasn't good enough, I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't cool enough. You know, I didn't fit into the crowds that I wanted to fit into. So maybe this would help me do that. And it just, it just left me riddled in the corner, shaking with anxiety, you know, so like tense that I couldn't like, that was not fun, but it took me, it took me a long ass time to realize that. 
So what was going on there that you didn't feel good enough? I mean, that is something I resonate with. It's certainly mm -hmm. how I grew up, a constant sense of not good enough. Um, mm -hmm. But I know where mine came from. And, but you say that you didn't have a traumatic childhood. So where was the mm -hmm. sense of not good enough? Like, why was that happening? You know, I'm, I'm really... I'm not a hundred percent sure. You know, my, my parents didn't have a, a wonderful relationship. There was, there was yelling in the house, but it was, you know, usually between them. Uh, they divorced in 91. I think I was, I forget how old I was, 12 maybe when they divorced. Uh, my mom was in school, so she wasn't home a lot in the evenings. She worked during the day. She was in university at night. Uh, so she wasn't around a lot. My, my dad worked very hard and was good at what he did. He was a salesman. He sold, um, he sold things to farmers. I, I forget like bolts and grease and things like that. He had a van with a display case. He'd drive all over the countryside to the farmers and, and, you know, he moved up in that company and he did well, but when he got home at night, he, he was spent. I don't, I don't remember doing a lot of, uh, fun things with, with my father. I remember him sitting in the chair exhausted at the end of the day. So maybe there's something there. Maybe, maybe I thought that, you know, like I wasn't good enough to spend time with or something. Um, maybe I'm still exploring that. Maybe I still don't fully understand the, the extent of, of the traumas that I was exposed to as a child. But um, in any case, I, I remember wanting to hang out with the bad kids, you know, and, and the, 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 the kids that wanted to hang out with me, I didn't want anything to do with them because they weren't drinking and they weren't getting into trouble. Now, why that was appealing to me, I, I, I don't really understand. So. One of the common themes, and my longtime listeners have heard it a thousand times, is that there is no such thing as addiction without trauma. Hmm. And... Now, that's why I was asking you the questions I was before, because maybe that's not true. Maybe there is such a thing as addiction without trauma. But mm -hmm. most of the experts that I've had on, and also those with lived experience, they would say, no, uh, th there is no addiction without trauma. Because if you were trying to escape yourself, in your words, well, mm -hmm. what is it that you're trying to escape? That's th th something traumatic happened. And sometimes mm -hmm. what that is, is... And it's a word that uh, doesn't sit well with, with some people, but is neglect. When there's a lack of affirmation from our parental f figures, that lack of attaboys and uh, I believe in you and you're good enough, when you don't hear that from those that you care about the most, when you don't have mm -hmm. that encouragement, that is trauma. Absolutely it is. And when you are seeking affirmation through other groups, whether it be the bad boy groups or whatever it is, you're, mm -hmm. it is only natural for us to seek that connection through whatever, wherever we can find it. And that's why people gravitate to gangs or anywhere where they feel like they fit and mm -hmm. where they're getting that affirmation, whether it be positive or negative, somebody's telling you that you belong here. So if we don't yeah. get it from our parents, we're going to get it from somewhere. And yeah. that sounds exactly like what, what uh, your childhood was. You, you found it somewhere. Yeah. And, and you know, that's, and that's fair enough. And perhaps it's uh, just a matter of the stories that I hear quite often and I have for a long time is that there is these very 
uh, extreme circumstances of abuse, of, of, of neglect, of, of foster care, of all of these things, I never experienced any of that. You know, um, I, I had a home. There was always food in the fridge. I was never locked in my room. I was never locked in the car while my dad was in the bar. I was never any of that. Um, if, if, if I could point my trauma towards anything, it would be just that I, I don't have a lot of really great bonding moments. You know, the parents were there, but they weren't really there. If that makes any sense. Oh, it does. I often say yeah. I was raised by wolves, Daniel. And, uh, you know, and it's true. I was raised by wolves. I, I raised myself for the most part. My parents, uh, my mom loved me and, mm -hmm. uh, my dad tried to, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, um, they had their own stuff going on and they're just in survival mode as many, many are. And when our parents are in survival mode, uh, they do not have the capacity to be nurturing. They, they mm -hmm. don't have it. And if somebody grew up like my father did, with um, uh, whose father was a World War II veteran, and mm -hmm. he didn't get to meet him until he was eight years old, because uh, he, he was two years old when, when the war started, my dad was, and the uh, war was about six years long. So mm -hmm. gets back, and here's an eight-year-old that you've really never met. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, and, and, uh, and here's this stranger saying, hi, I'm your dad. And... Um, after six years of war in Europe. So we are all doing our best. Mm -hmm. And um, if you had more, you'd do more. You know, if you, if you had more, you'd give more. If you knew better, you'd do better. So yeah. that gets passed on to our parents. It gets passed on to us. So mm -hmm. what you experienced is a lack of connection. And that is the injury of PTSD. That is the injury of... Um, all trauma is disconnection. Mm -hmm. Disconnection from ourselves, disconnection from a sense of family, disconnection from a sense of heritage, that this is where mm -hmm. I ca came from. And uh, that disconnection absolutely is trauma. And yet we, like you just so eloquently did, we like to minimize what we went through because somebody's always had it worse. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's always got it worse, you know. And as long as we're not that bad, we're okay. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. But I would yeah. submit to you, Daniel, that um, there's nothing small or minimal about feeling disconnected from your parents. In fact, mm -hmm. that's one of the worst things that a person can endure. Um, yeah. f feeling that, okay, why am I disconnected from my folks? Am I not good enough to get your attention? Am I not mm -hmm. worthy of your love? That that is some core core trauma, absolutely yeah. it is, and yeah. um, and yet people, and I hear it all the time. We'll we'll mm -hmm. we'll, we'll we'll minimize that. Yeah, true enough. Let's talk about some of the foundations that uh, you've worked with and for so, some of the efforts that you've uh, put forth. So. To be sure, substance, substance abuse professionals. Uh, who are they? How'd you get started with them? Oh my, that's um, that's an old one. Um, that I yeah, was. It's on I was your working. get get your LinkedIn uh, sorted out, yeah, man. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, yeah. You got my old email address and my old uh, my old work stuff. So to be sure, um, 
is a company that does assessments for people who have failed drug tests on job sites. So they uh, say they have an accident and they take a piss test and uh, they fail. They need a substance abuse professional to come and assess them to see what level of treatment or what level of care they need to return to work safely. Um, that could be like an education because maybe someone smoked a joint on Sunday and they didn't realize that that's still going to be in their system on Tuesday. So if that was the case and, and that's the, the conclusion that the substance abuse professional comes to, it's a two hour education basically saying, Hey, don't do that. <laughs> you know, and that's and a, that would be a long two hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Um, and, and other times it could be as much as, you know, inpatient treatment and aftercare and, and return to work planning. And, and sometimes it's, it's pretty intense because, as you know, sometimes these problems get pretty deep. <clears throat> so, but I haven't worked for them for, for quite a while. Uh, they're, they're still operating. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I dove headfirst into to what I'm doing now. Um, yeah, I... Uh, I do have supporters, uh, ongoing supporters, uh, Prairie Sky Recovery Center being one of them. They're, they're here in Saskatchewan. They do uh, uh, intensive inpatient treatment. Um, they support medically assisted treatment strategies. And they've, they've, been, they've been really, really great to me. They, they understand the, the power of stories. So they were one of my first supporters, actually, and... Uh, you know, they, they, they really gave me the, the shot of nitrous that I, that I needed to, to get to where I am today. For the, the, the P tests, the drug testing uh, for, for job sites, does ketamine mm-hmm. show up in that drug testing? I'm sure it would. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason I ask is that would be a barrier just as um, cannabis is a barrier. Mm-hmm. If, if somebody's working up north and they get pee tested regularly and yet they mm-hmm. suffer from nightmares, well, sorry, uh, one of the best ways to not suffer from nightmares is, a little, is some cannabis oil before you go to bed at night. Mm-hmm. So if that's not working for you, if you can't do that because you're working, well, then you just you just got to suffer. Um, yeah. You know, and... and I was, that's why I was asking about ketamine. What mm-hmm. was what? What has been your? Have you ever, ever had ketamine therapy yourself personally? No, you've, you've had no. the guys from the newly on it. Yeah, no, I've never, I've never experienced that myself. But um, what I what I can tell you is the the legality of the substance has has nothing to do with um, reasonable suspicion or, or or fitness for duty. It comes down to, are you fit and safe to do the tasks that you're performing, especially in a safety-sensitive environment? Um, if, if what you're using is prescribed by a doctor and it can be determined that it's not affecting your ability to, to do safety-sensitive functions, then you know, that, that is taken into consideration when, when the assessment is done. However, if, if it is found that your prescribed medication is impacting your ability to do a safety-sensitive job, then you, you simply can't do that safety-sensitive job regardless of 
prescription or diagnosis. So That's have just, you seen exceptions to the rule in, say, Fort McMurray, where people are allowed to use medical cannabis? I can't say for sure that I have, but again, I, I wasn't working with them for very long mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's been a while since I've done anything with them. So I, I can't, I don't think I can accurately answer that question with the confidence that I'd like to. No, fair enough. You've had a lot of, uh, as we alluded to earlier, you've had a lot of success stories on on your show. Have mm-hmm. any of them been from ketamine treatment? Have you seen uh, ketamine treatment help people uh, get off of uh, or beat addiction? I have seen plant medicines, and this is just personally. Like, I, I would like to to have guests that have gone through the ketamine process on. I haven't had any yet. However, I have had people come on who have had great success through psychedelics, other psychedelics like ayahuasca, like um, uh, DMT, uh, other, other things like that. Uh, they, it, it wasn't as much a clinical setting as, as would be with, with ketamine and the organizations that, that we're familiar with right now that are, that are practicing that. But I have seen success through, through other psychedelics. What do you think the secret sauce is there? What do you think is happening during the psychedelic process that provides healing? You know, I've just, I, I've heard a lot of different things and, and it, it sparks my, it piques my interest into wanting to do it myself. Uh, you know, we're, we're always learning more about ourselves and, and coming to these realizations as we get older and continue healing. Um, I've heard people say that the plant teaches you mm-hmm. that there, there, there is a, there is a spirit or an essence in the plant that comes to you and, and shows you these things about you in a non-biased way that allows you to step away from yourself and, and look at your life from the outside uh, in, in, in the essence of healing, not in, not in judgment. And um, that, that's, that's basically the overwhelming message that I get. The more people that I talk to, um, be it the healers themselves or the people who have experienced these, uh, uh, healing uh, practices is that you know it, it takes them outside of themselves and allows them to see themselves in a way that they never have before. That was my experience as well with psilocybin. It's how I was able to quit drinking. Uh, hmm. The psilocybin showed me the connection between alcohol, myself, and the world. the hmm. The consequences and and it does so in a way of removing all ego and and just showing you that. Um, what I was shown, and I'm not saying that this is right, I'm just saying this is what I was shown and, and it made sense to me. Mm-hmm. What, it, what it showed me is that alcohol is a trick. It's a lie. And it, it, you think it's a good time, and maybe it is in the moment, but if mm-hmm. you really look at it, there's always consequences to it. And it, it's uh, that good time, that, that party, it's a, it's a path to devastation. And... Mm-hmm. Um, at least it was for me. That's what I was shown. And that it, it lowers your vibration, your frequency. Mm-hmm. So when your frequency is low, other low frequency things come into your life. You know, that's why we have indiscriminate sex uh, with people that we really shouldn't when, when we're under the influence or drive when we're drunk or any other list of things that... Um, poor judgment will result in because that's mm-hmm. what that's what the booze does 
gives you poor judgment. You're like, yeah, screw it. Why not? Let's, let's, let's yeah. go for it. Hold my beer and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> watch this. And, yeah. uh, sometimes that kills you. And sometimes it just, it creates those, um, moments that keep you up at night. We're like, Ooh, yeah, I remember doing that. Or, Oh God. Yeah. I, yeah I said that. Oh, why yeah. did I say that? And those <laughs> memories, they don't just go away. <laughs> no, no. It still keeps me up yeah. at night. There's, there's always things I've said or done, but that, so that, the experience that I've had with psilocybin definitely echoes exactly how, um, you, what your understanding is of it from the people mm-hmm. that, um, that you've talked to. So if there was a top three things from all the conversations that you've had, if there is a top one or two or three things that um, people should know or consider, whether it be mindset or lifestyle or, or whatever it is, how do people beat drinking or, or, any, or any substance addiction? What are the top three things that come to mind for you? Well, now in, in no particular order, um, community, Mm. we have to, I had to, I'm not going to say we, I had to find a place where I could go that was safe. Now I did that through the fellowship through, you know, 12 step meetings. That's, I went to two meetings a day for over a year simply because I didn't know where else to go. It gave me structure and it put me in front of people who didn't drink or didn't, didn't do drugs. Now, now my, my drug of choice was not alcohol, but it would do, you know, it would get the job done. <clears throat> um, and I, I, I made a couple of friends and, and it wasn't always the same couple of friends. Friends would come, friends would go, you know, some people are around for a reason and some for a season but it taught it put me in a place where i could practice living i could go to this place and i could be who i am and i could say the angry things that made no sense uh, i could be mad i could spit venom i could spit healing and they would accept me uh, I, I said some pretty hateful things when i when i came into recovery and they didn't tell me to shut up they they allowed me to to put that out in the world and to experience that energy myself. And I don't know about you, but for me, when my thoughts are twisting out and I say them out loud, I realize how twisted they are. Oftentimes, sometimes not, sometimes not right away. Sometimes I have to say things and then a week later I'll be like, man, I can't believe I said that, you know, but, um, yeah, the saying stupid things doesn't go away in recovery, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> it just gives us a little better opportunity to learn from them, hopefully. So the that would that would be one of the 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 pillars of of my recovery early on especially is a a couple of good friends that understand what I'm going through. Another one is service. I had to find something fulfilling. I had to find something to fill that void. I'm, I'm, I'm always going to have that, uh, I guess I'll call it drug-seeking behavior because I don't know what else to call it in this moment. There's very likely better words. But I, I use that now. You know, the, the drug-seeking behavior was just me wanting to feel better, wanting to feel accepted, wanting to, to not feel the pain. 
I had to find something else that did that. And I had to let go of the idea that it was going to be instantly gratifying. So, and it took me a while. It took me a while. Now, when I, when I came into recovery, it was shortly after my, my son, who you saw here earlier, uh, he had been apprehended from, from me and my partner. And a couple of months went by before I, before I entered recovery. And when I did, my recovery became all about getting him back. And, and quite frankly, I think... And this is, you might, you might chuckle at this, but I think I might've got clean on a resentment (laughs) because uh, my partner and I, who have now reconciled six years later, at the time we were at odds, you could say, uh, some really terrible people came into our lives and some really terrible things happened. And as a result, we ended up separating. Now I'm not going to tell her story, but uh, she left the home and I came under the mindset, screw her, I'm getting clean first. And I did. So as strange as that is, you know, um, if I have anything to say about, about coming into recovery is I don't care why. I don't care why you're coming into recovery. I don't care what your reason is for putting down the dope. You know, as long as you do, as long as you come in and you find your way right? Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different paths and a lot of different reasons. And when I did it, I was done. Like what, the last time I smoked meth, I remember I didn't want it. And ever since then, I haven't, you know. Now, that coupled with, with my desire to get my son back in my life, with my desire, with that, that resentment that I'm telling you about, that gave me what I needed to, to find a safer way. And I did. And my life is wonderful now. Uh, it's not easy. I'm not going to sit here and say that my life is easy and full of rainbows and ice cream. But I have mountains to climb. I have that fulfilling thing that I need that, that replaces the, the, the drugs that I was trying to use to fill that void. The first thing that you said was community, a safe community, a safe place to be, and that is so powerful. I've had Kim Barthel keeps coming back to me. Uh, she was on the show, and Kim, when I asked her about the power of peer support, how important is it? She she said it was the most important thing, mm-hmm. and it really is because. Uh, and we were talking about it earlier: a sense of disconnection. Disconnection is the trauma. A safe community, so properly done peer support, not just hanging out with people, but hanging out with people without judgment. Because that's what true love is, isn't it? So if we don't have anywhere else to go, we can go to a properly run peer support meeting, whether it be 12-step, Al-Anon, whatever, and Mm -hmm. people just get it, and there is no judgment. You can just Mm -hmm. be you, um, with all the warts and it doesn't matter what story you have. Somebody else has a story that's uh, similar or just as gross <laughs> mm-hmm. or worse or, or worse. And you, can, and you can be like, Oh, thank God I'm not that bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, yeah. but either way, you know that they get it and that sense of not being. So when you talk about a safe community, what, what makes a peer support group, what makes a community safe? What are the top two or three things? Let's drill down, 
down on that a little bit. You know, it, it's interesting because it doesn't matter where you go, you're going to find people that don't want to see you do well. Mm. Um, it's, it's in, you know, I, I met a lot of people that rubbed me the wrong way. I got into a relationship early in my recovery and it didn't go well, shockingly. Um, and it made me want to not go to those rooms because I might see her, you know, and I might see her with her new man, which happened shockingly fast. And I don't know what it is, but I kept going. And when I would go there, I would sit in a place where I had to see them, where I had to see them. And I'm really not sure at that time why I felt that was safe, but the majority of the people in those rooms understood what I was going through and they accepted me anyways. Uh, I, and to say there's no judgment in those rooms, that's, that's not entirely true either. There's, there's, <laughs> there's judgment everywhere. You know, there, there, there's assholes everywhere. So being able to go into an environment where I could find one or two people that I could talk to. And even if that was just to say, I hate this, I hate that, this sucks, that sucks, all of this things, all of these things are terrible. You know, early on, they didn't say suck it up. Well, some of them did. But um, if you ask me why it's safe, is because that's what worked for me. That's what was safe for me. Is it safe for everyone? No. No, because it's not for everyone. People have to find their own way. And like you were saying earlier, you found your way through. And I don't know if you if you go to uh, peer support groups or not. And, you know, it's none of my business. But some people find their way through psychedelics. Some people find their safe place through religion. Some people find their safe place through listening to meditations on YouTube. For me, that was my safe place. They were there to listen to me. They would call me out on my bullshit with love. You know, um, I often say I didn't need my hand held. I needed my ass kicked. So again, that puts a, that puts a spin on safe place. You know, I, I needed to be told that the way I'm thinking is fucked up. I needed that and that I needed to do better. And this is how, this is what worked for them. You know, tell that me, wouldn't be a safe place. Tell me about that fucked up thinking. What, what did that look like? Well, like I said, coming into the rooms and, and getting clean because I wanted to get clean before she did. Mm-hmm. Is that fucked that, up? I think so. Don't you think? Did it work? It did. Well, I mean, I think it did. You know, maybe I wanted to get clean because I wanted to get clean. You know, my desire to use had been taken from me. I, I, I didn't go into those rooms saying, I want to get high. I want to get high. You know, I went into those rooms trying to cope with the hate I was feeling from the terrible shit that happened, you know, and, and looking back now, I'm coping with the feelings of, of, uh, you know, always never being able to find the acceptance that I thought I needed. Uh, I would, I would go in and I would be, be mad at people for, for things I imagined they did. I didn't even know if they did them or not. You ever did that? You ever get mad at someone because of something you made up in your head that they might've done all the time. (laughs) Yeah. And then you're like mad at them in real life. (laughs) So, um, Oh, hello. Hi. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt, but do you have the keys for the car? 
I don't. Sorry. So, anyways, that's 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 Donna. Hey, Donna. <laughs> yeah, she's the she's the the person that we're we're talking about now. We uh, we've come to our senses and uh, we're we're raising a couple of kids together now. But uh, yeah, where uh, it happened again? Where are we? Where are we indeed? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that threw me off too. Yeah, it's all right. Um, let's talk about compassion and addiction. How important is it to have? What does compassion mean? I'm not saying this right. There is a lack of compassion for for people that are addicted. Mm-hmm. So, what does compassion look like? And how important is it when you're dealing with people who are suffering from an addiction? I mean, it's paramount. However, we need to, when we talk about compassion, we also need to talk about boundaries. In my opinion, Mm. we can be compassionate with people to a point that is not disrespectful to them. However, I know for myself, and and I'm sure you do too, that when we are lost in our addiction, we're capable of doing some pretty bad things, you know. And and even if that's like you invite someone into your home because you want to show them compassion, and they steal your TV and and your stereo because they need to get high. Yeah. So compassion is is important but we need a safe place to show that compassion which we don't in in canada for the most part have nearly enough of for myself i was able to get into detox i was able to get into treatment i was able to have a a good aftercare program now many people don't don't have those opportunities like i did because i have a mother who's been in the addictions field for 35 years and knows people and was able to afford me professional courtesies. You know, I got me in when I needed to. Now, compassion to me is understanding that when someone is lost in their addiction, they likely don't have the capacity to call back every day to hold their spot in detox. You know, that to me, that's saying to someone with a broken leg, you, you go and you walk around that block twice with your broken leg and, and then walk through our front doors and then we'll give you a cast. To me, compassion is um, reasonable access to, to services. If I, 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 us people who suffered with substance use, we're a compulsive bunch Impulsive, sorry, impulsive. When we want something, we want it right now. And that should be something that our healthcare services capitalize on. When we need help, we want it right now. And in 10 minutes, we're going to be back off in the sticks. If we can reach people in that moment of clarity and show them compassion in that moment, have that compassion and safety available when they need it, we would see a higher success rate in my opinion. The efficacy rate of detox centers, rehab centers, ain't great. 
Um, talk therapy in general has an efficacy rate somewhere between 12 and 16% from what I've seen. Uh, so not great, not very efficient. And so many people, like the recidivism rate, just like it is in prison, um, mm-hmm. the, the recidivism of and <laughs> is so high and success is so low. Um, what are some of the do's and don'ts of these rehab centers? Like what, what do you think makes a successful one? And like, what does that even look like? You know, I, I'm a big proponent of aftercare. Mm. Now I do see challenges in some treatment centers and I'm, I'm by no means a professional with the capacity to, to say what works and, and what doesn't, you know, I, I don't have any numbers or letters behind my name. So, but what I do see sometimes is people being kicked out of programs like inpatient treatment programs for displaying symptoms of the disorder they're in there to get help with. Now that would be uh, one of the biggest things that I could call out with certainty. You know, I, I hear oftentimes people getting kicked out for, for having sex. Okay. That's not, that's not appropriate behavior, but we're, we're in there because we don't know what appropriate behavior is. Or having troubles with impulse control. Exactly. That, 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 we're here to get help with that. And, you know, maybe, maybe we should look at, at, at the program that is making that opportunity be available to us in that vulnerable state, as opposed to kicking people out of the program because we don't want it bad enough. We're there. We want it. You know, and to send people back out into the fire after they, they complete, it could be the most wonderful treatment center in the world. If we don't have a safe place to go when we get out, you just, you'll, you'll just fall back into it. The odds are, you know, more likely that, that we will. We don't know how to live. You, you, you give us 28 days of treatment, that, that barely dries us out. Yeah. You know, we're still wet behind the ears when we come rolling out of that joint. So I think aftercare is, in, in my personal opinion, aftercare, compassionate aftercare, is, is one of the biggest shortcomings of our public health care system in, in regards to mental health and addictions right now. We don't have a place to go when we get out. So what would that aftercare look like? For me, it was a sober living house. I lived in this sober living house called Trottier House here in Saskatoon, run by an organization called Comfy. Um, great, great program. And I, had, I was subject to weekly piss tests, uh, weekly case planning, mandatory meetings. I was, there was a social worker. It was an apartment building. I had my own apartment. I had to get my own groceries. I had to take care of myself. I had to do all that. There's a social worker on staff 24 hours a day. Um, and the, the social worker that I had was another person in recovery, which was wonderful. I could go downstairs. If I'm twisting out at three o'clock in the morning, I could go downstairs and, and there was somebody there. I need help now. It's there. It's there. And even if that's just an ear to listen, you know, so that's what worked for me. They, they did that. They watched them. There's cameras everywhere. They're watching like crazy. I, I did my thing. I developed a strategy. I went to meetings. I went to the gym. Six months after I came into recovery, 
uh, they awarded me my son back. And then my son and I lived in that sober living house for another six or seven months under the same guidelines, the same, you know, talk screening, case planning. Uh, they provided respite for me when, you know, a couple times a week, my son could go to daycare for a day so that I could like breathe, you know? Uh, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you, do you have kids? I do. I got two boys. Right. Okay. Well then, you know, uh, he was a three-year-old boy at the time and I had five minutes sober. So, uh, they, they get it. They're like, okay, you can't just do that and, and be okay. Now, uh, oftentimes people don't, don't, don't get that. They, they, they get thrown back into the fire with kids, with family that's resentful or hurt or whatever. Um, oftentimes into toxic environments where there's still alcohol and drugs available and happening. Um, I, it's been my experience that people who are actively using uh, feel attacked by people who aren't. You know, if, if somebody uh, puts down those substances, there's a there's a small part of of your mind that that oh, so now you think you're better than me, right? So uh, it's these toxic environments that 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 throw up a lot of challenges for people newly in recovery. Well, it's seen as a threat because if you're doing something that they know that they should do but they don't want to do, well, that's personally hurtful to them. Mm-hmm. So what's actually going on and and what manifests aren't the same thing the the manifest oh you think you're better than me no no that's not the internal process the the internal process is like oh it is possible and you're doing it and i don't mm-hmm. have the strength in this moment to also take responsibility uh you really are stronger than me right mm-hmm. now in this moment and i don't want to face that i don't want to admit that i don't want a positive example i want excuses and uh justification for my poor behavior and for my lifestyle that's what's actually going on and i remember feeling that myself yeah i remember feeling that myself when when one of my friends would would put down the pipe and they would go and they would get this key tag and they would come around and they would show the key tag and there was a part of me that was resentful towards that you know because again it challenged my ideals it challenged a little bit of who i am and what i'm capable of that is success in any arena whether mm-hmm. um you got a better job or a promotion or um you've started a business and it's doing well Whenever anybody's doing well at anything, those that don't feel that they are worthy or good enough will be jealous. And that's all it is, is jealousy. And that Mm -hmm. jealousy is just a lack of self-esteem. But it, it will happen no matter what your success is. And like anything else, getting sober is I mean, that is a big, 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 big obstacle. It is a huge success. One of the greatest successes that you can have is going from addiction to um, to beating that addiction. It's one of the greatest obstacles you can overcome. So, uh, of course, there's going to be the haters for people that don't want to let go of it or don't want to admit that they actually have a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, when we talk about the, the greatest things that, that we've ever done... Um, the easy part for me was, was quitting. It was just, I remember I took, you know, I, 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 like I said, I had the pipe and I remember taking one last chug off of this, um, this, this is two liter cooler that I had. And I went to treatment. And ever since that day, I, I haven't had any desire to use. However, I didn't have my first suicidal thought in my life until I was nine months in recovery. 
know, my, my problems, I had big problems when I was using, but my problems got worse when I came into recovery because now I had nowhere to run. And my problem, a, a, a new problem showed up was me wanting to not be around anymore because I couldn't handle the pain of, of what had happened in my old life. So yeah, that, that was the hard part for me was staying in recovery Self and, and forgiveness, self forgiveness, and and the forgiveness of of others mm. uh, for for the things that had been done to me. I mean, the selfishness doesn't go away. For me, it didn't in early recovery. I was still extremely selfish. I had a very hard time seeing my part in these things, in the things that happened. Um, that how my behavior led me into those situations where the harms occurred you know at seemingly at the hands of other people now i've come to learn in my recovery and i still go back to this old way of thinking sometimes because healing's messy but I, i've come to see my part in how i walked myself and the people around me in into these situations so are you talking about fighting the victim mentality yeah yeah 100 percent I came into the I came into recovery, hundred percent victim. In fact, I, I would say that the hardest part of my recovery would be to to let go of that that victim mentality, and and realize that that I was an asshole too. <laughs> One of my very first episodes was about the victim mentality. Um, mm. The title of the episode <clears throat> was the number one greatest barrier to recovery whether it's recovery from PTSD, recovery from uh, addiction, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The greatest barrier is the victim mentality. It's getting to the point where I am the problem, I am the solution. Well, that person did that to me. Yeah, who put, who put you there? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I did. <laughs> I put myself there. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm the one that stayed. I'm the one that, uh, that chose to spend time with this person, to be in that orbit. Mm-hmm. I, I chose to be there in that, in this harmful environment or, or, or I invited them in or I invited them in. Yeah. yeah. I invited this harm into my life and then I'm mm-hmm. complaining about the harm that I invited yeah. into my life. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think we're about there. Um, Daniel, we covered a lot of ground today and thank you so much for being open and candid and I, I think I probably went a couple of places that you weren't expecting that uh, made you a little bit uncomfortable. But thank you so much for doing this with me today. Oh, and thank you so much for having me and for, for having this candid conversation. I appreciate it very much. I, I love the work that you're doing. I, I know that what we're doing aligns uh, on a lot of levels. So it's, it's nice to be building relationships with uh, like-minded people. And uh, I hope I said something of some use today. Well, being candid is of use because it takes tremendous, tremendous courage and a great deal of self-awareness to be able to have these conversations. And when others hear them, it increases their self-awareness, which always has to be the first part from the self-awareness stems the, the situational awareness. And that is the only way to, to truly recover is to feel connected and you have to know who you are who you truly are to understand these connections that we have and to, to recover. You have to know who you are 
before you, mm-hmm. you can understand your own role in, in the world and in your own recovery. So thank you for, for, for your courage in doing the work that you do and in being a guest today. I do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone. All right. Please stay on the line, Daniel. You're listening to Operation Trauma. <laughs> I screwed up my own outro. You're listening to Operation Dango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring.